Blog Talk Radio. And that was the theme song that was written for me by the lovely person at GateWorld.net who listened to my interview with Joe Malazzi a couple weeks ago and took it upon himself to write a very slightly bizarre theme song for my uh, for my show and uh, very, very welcome to it's sort of. I suppose it's got a little bit of an espionage uh, ring to it, which is in keeping with our show for tonight. We already have a caller on the line. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, Anyway, welcome to Let's Talk TV Live. I am your host, Barbara Barnett. I'm co-executive editor of Blog Critics Magazine, where I also serve as senior TV and film editor. I'm also editor-in-chief and publisher of the very new Let's Talk TV blog. And I want to acknowledge that we are up to just about 25,000 listens in our first three months on the air, which is very, very exciting. Um, and I have to tell you, too, the last week's show, which was which featured my recorded interview with Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis, the executive producers and showrunners of Once Upon a Time and also executive producers on the hit series Lost, which is on no more, um, has gotten more than 4,000 listens this week so far. So um, very, very exciting. Um, in the next few weeks, next Monday night, I will be having on Jane Espenson, the sci-fi TV goddess of writing and producing. Um, Jane Espenson, who is famous for uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Game of Thrones, Torchwood, the list goes on at Battlestar Galactica. The list goes on and on. And um, she writes for Once Upon a Time. Her next episode airs next Sunday night. And she will be on a, on our show for the full hour next week. Um, and don't forget to read my article, which speculates about that episode, on my blog at letstalktv.barbabarnett.com. Tomorrow night, we will be starting our House MD Rewatch starting with the pilot episode, and my guest will be Bobbin Bergstrom, who was medical advisor to the series and also was in the cast from not the pilot episode, but getting pretty close. Um, she was in, from season one. She was medical advisor, and she played a nurse. Speaking of that, if you haven't already gotten it, please pick up a copy of Chasing Zebras, The Unofficial Guide to House which is my book and my take on the first six seasons of House MD. It is available in English. It is available in Spanish. It just came out in French. And it is available in pretty much any ebook form that you might want, anywhere you want, everywhere from Barnes & Noble to Powell's to Amazon, you name it, Borders, whatever. Oh, Borders doesn't exist anymore. Sorry. Um, so you get that um, and also um, pick up a copy of download a copy of my app the Let's Talk TV app which you can get from iTunes or you can get from play.google.com and speaking of the Let's Talk TV app I want to put in a pitch for the sponsor of this show which is called Wireless One Marketing 
Did you know that your business can now have its own mobile app at a very reasonable cost? Your customers, your listeners, your friends, your congregants, whoever you are, you can they can take you with them wherever they go. Um, if your business isn't mobile-friendly, then you are missing out on big opportunities. And Wireless One Marketing Group, located here in the Chicago area, is here to help. They can build a beautiful mobile app, which you can see if you download mine, uh, optimized for whatever you need. They are quick. They are fast. It takes them literally days to come up with your app. And within a very short time, you will be on iTunes. Even shorter time, you will be on play.google.com. So please call Wireless One Marketing Group today at 847-637-2514 for a free demo. That number is, again, 847-637-2514, or please visit their website at www.app2020.com. That is www.app2020.com. And we are welcoming to the show tonight Dr. Wesley Britton, who is the author of several books on espionage, on films, and literature, and we're going to talk to him a lot about that topic tonight. He is also co-host of online radio's Dave White Presents, where he interviews musicians, authors, actors, and entertainment insiders. Not only that, he teaches English at Harrisburg Area Community College. He also, which is how I know Wes, writes for blog critics where he writes mostly music and not about spy TV, which I find really interesting. So tonight... Welcome to the show, Wes. Well, hello. Thanks very much. Welcome to the world of online radio. It's quite a circus, isn't it? It's fun. I am having such a great time. <laughs> I'm doing one show a week, and now I just, this week, I am starting two shows a week. Am I crazy? Yes. Yes. Especially if you want to try to get guests for them all. Oh, that's work. I've been really, really lucky uh, getting guests. I've had some fantastic guests. Um, so far, and I've done a few pre-recorded interviews, but not many. Most of them have been live. People have subjected themselves to live interviews, which, like you are, which is yay, it's fun. You're a veteran at this. You're actually much more veteran at this than I am. So, um, Wes and I—is it Wesley or is it Wes? Either way, I'm very happy with either one. Okay. So, Wes and I came upon our mutual interest in television spies or movie, TV, and literature spies when we were talking about something completely different via email, something about blog critics business. And I don't remember exactly how it came up, but I think what I said, and I can't even remember the context, but I told you that my first TV crush, and I was like eight years old, (laughs) man from uncle, and you asked me, which one I liked, was it Napoleon or Ilya? And I said it was Ilya. And he you you sort of sort of laughed online virtually. I could hear you laughing while you were <laughs> Well that's because I belong to a man from Uncle Listserv that's called Channel D. And for a long, long, long time it's been very evident that most of the male members are Napoleon fans. And I think without any exception at all all the ladies are Ilya fans. They're still in love with him after all these years. Um, they're still writing fan fiction based around him. Uh, that, that show's got some legs, that's for sure. No, you know, it's funny. Um, I had lost interest in the show, and when it was on, there were no such thing as DVRs and VCRs and 
recordable DVDs. Um, if you missed it, you missed it. And I remember my parents, if they were going to punish me, it would be on Monday nights. They would say, oh, that's cold. No TV for you tonight. I'm like, well, Man from Uncle is on, and it's and it's a rerun of my absolutely favorite episode, which was called the Gazebo in the Maze Affair. I still remember. Oh yeah, from the first year, yeah. In the first season, and I would say, too bad, you're gonna have to wait to see it again. And and then my dad would usually relent about five minutes before it was going. <laughs> And now you can have every one of them on glorious DVD. And boy, it took forever for those guys to put that set out. I was so excited. Actually, I think my favorite episodes, now that I'm like much older than eight years old, uh, <laughs> are two episodes with Jill Ireland that I think were supposed to be one like double episode, but they. Split. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the one with Jack Polance in it, I think. If I got. No, no, I'm on. I'm... Oh, I'll wait a while and one of these fans will call it and, and give us the specifics. I've forgotten. I know what the titles are. I remember. The, quadripart- the Quadripartite Affair and, okay. and the Guaco Piano Affair. Uh, okay, there you go. Give that girl a pen communicator. <laughs> because, well, I remembered because a few years later after it aired, Guaco Piano was like fast. Like the classic chess opening, which when I was eight, I didn't actually know that. But <laughs> so I, that's where that title came from. Quadripartite. I don't remember what that came from. But um, yeah, I was such I was such a man from Uncle fan. I really was. And my my friends and I used to we didn't play Barbie dolls. We actually got our um, you know shoulder holster. We made shoulder holster out of uh, out of belts. And we got our uncle silencer guns and our badges. And my brother was a rock musician. And um, he had, you know, these things that you plug into a, um, to a, an amplifier, these great big quarter-inch cables. Well, he, would, he had a bunch of them. So we, and you could untwist them. So that became our communicators. Oh, yeah, well, Man from Uncle was great for that because they had that gun out, that six-piece gun you could buy. And of course, the board game, all those novels, all those comic books. In fact, there's a book out that's called The Toys from Uncle that's like 64 pages of all of the merchandise, lunchboxes, thermoses, you name it. It was an astonishing – in fact, I think that was one of the first times that a TV show was merchandised quite that way, and that's one of the reasons that it really had the – reach into our little young hearts is that we can have all those toys so we could be Uncle Agents in between the episodes. That's right. That's right. And and it's great because, you know, it was almost like a precursor to um, the fandoms, you know, of the internet. Oh, yeah. You know, it was really way, way ahead of its time in so many different ways. Um, but, yeah, I, I remember my I, – I still have my copy of the Doomsday Affair novel. Number two in the Ace novels. The, the villain's name was Tixie Yilno. <laughs> Backwards for exit only. <laughs> and I, st- I I loved it. I loved it because they really tortured poor Ilya. I loved when they <laughs> What can I say? What can I say? So um, so how did you get into writing? You wrote, you've written four books on the topic. How did you get into that? The first one, Spy Television, that came out in 2003, came about 
because I was looking around and there were all of these really good TV books on specific shows for the Man from Uncle. There was a bunch for the Avengers, and there was a bunch for the Prisoner, and uh, I Spy hadn't been at that point. I came later, but the Wild Wild West, and I thought, you know, nobody has ever talked about the genre of TV spies altogether in one book. So I ended up writing that book kind of from the middle out. I had these different chapters on the big shows from the 1960s, Uncle the Avengers, Wild Wild West, I Spy, Secret Agent, The Prisoner, etc. And then it kind of developed where I went back in time and looked at all the shows that started in 1951 and what TV spies were like before the Bond boom. And then I went through the 70s and 80s and looked at all the spy shows and the different genres and trends that happened up until... Well, at that point, 2003, and then I developed the other two books. I got more into books and movies and things like that. Then I came back to TV Spies because I wanted to correct some errors, and I wanted to have kind of a nice reference book for people. And that, whew, that was an explosion. That came out. That, was, that, by the way, folks, is the Encyclopedia of TV Spies, available at bookstores everywhere, <laughs> online anyway, from Bear Manor Media. It's a really nice book. It's a uh, thing like Gosh, it's almost as thick as mine. 495, almost 500 pages. Okay, it's longer than mine. My book on house is 423 pages. We only have one TV show. On one TV show. Only six seasons worth of it, too. Um, (laughs) People may be coming. Um, But that's great. So this is really this encyclopedia of TV. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed leafing through it. I did not read it cover to cover. Um, I, I actually plan on doing that because I'm just so fascinated with it. I was going through the book, and if you hear scratching in the back, that's my rabbit being really strange. <laughs> Why she's being strange. Uh, hopefully you can't hear her scratching uh, in her cage. Anyway, um, but I wanted – it's interesting that your other book um, kind of looks at the different decades because I wanted to ask you – um, well, first of all, let me ask you this. Uh, you said something in the introduction to the encyclopedia that defines what it is that makes a TV spy, because you have a very specific definition, and I want you to tell us about that. Well, I think that in what we call TV spies has meant different things at different times, um, and it's been so cross-blended with other genres. For example, the 60s, we kind of really think of as the glory days, but that was one of those were spy-fi, because there was a James Bond emphasis on the Man from Uncle and the Avengers, and shows like that were as much science fiction in many cases as they were uh, espionage stories, and that kind of carried on through the decade, Six Million Dollar Man. You think of fantasy and science fiction, but you know, that was, that was um, a sure. secret agent show, and show was Wonder Woman all the way up through Alias, which was very much a fantasy-oriented show and lots of others in between that are, well, people have probably kind of forgotten Invisible Man. There was three of those and the classic uh, Secret Adventures of Jules Verne that nobody remembers anymore, but that was the first um, uh, digitally produced television show. Then there were others that were more realistically based. When you think of the 60s, you're going to think of Secret Agent and I Spy that were more grounded and that didn't have all the fancy gadgets and all of that kind of stuff. That kind of was a carryover from the 50s, which were in the main more, well, in the 50s it was all anti-Reds and anti-Communists. And talk about the 50s for alone, just for a long period of time. 
But you know, throughout <clears throat> excuse me, uh, but throughout the years they've you know put them together with all kinds of things. The A Team, you kind of an action adventure, but they were secret agents on the run. Um, and in the 80s, things got really grounded, and you had shows like The Equalizer and MacGyver, where they, did, where they weren't globetrotters anymore like many of the earlier shows did. So there's all kinds of different genres. Um, I don't remember which section you're pointing to. What did I talk about? <laughs> well, I can actually quote because I have it tapped. Um, ah, what is a TV spy? Um, and you talk about the between like a, a normal kind of like cop versus a spy. So, you know, you have a policeman, like the network command for law enforcement. It's a law enforcement agency. Right. concerned with more of these kind of global problems versus police show would be much more concerned with community or a specific location. Mm-hmm. And that's the that you were trying to draw, and I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting, like you say, um, uh, one line from the American introduction to the 1966 season of The Avengers sums up this approach. John Speed and Emma Peel took on diabolical masterminds committing crimes against the people and the state. So to like Sherlock Holmes helping Scotland Yard with the murder of the week. That's absolutely true. It's by the Avengers, they were kind of pretty much stuck in uh, an England that never was, because the kind of England that they were always in was obviously very fanciful, and there were really eccentric characters and eccentric and quaint towns and things like that. But yeah, the scope and the scale of what spies are really investigating officers, you know, because they weren't really spies, because they were genuine spies. Somebody's undercover for years and years and is focused on one mission. They're not going to be knocking around from week to week, whereas an international kind of cop like a John Drake or um, Kelly Robinson and um, Alexander Scott, they're going to be globetrotting, popping up here and yon, and um, checking out, um some cases, it's official crime uh, in terms of, uh, like, China, Russia, you know, governments. But most of the time, it's against terrorists or it's against uh, criminals who want to take over the world or they're part of the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. So did you see, Did you, and you were talking about how things changed decade to decade, and I think in tone as well as in who the bad guys are. You know, in the 50s, you were talking about the Red Scare, um, and in the 80s, during the time, you know, during the Reagan administration, you know, you had stuff like, which was my guilty pleasure, I admit, Scarecrow and Mrs. King were the bad guys, were the Soviets, Partly the Soviets, but by the 80s, one major change that had happened, especially after Watergate and all the different um, controversies with their own government, the odds are pretty good that the adversaries they were dealing with are with you in your own government. There were going to be traitors or there were going to be problems within your own agency. So like when you get to, say, the equalizer, uh, McCall was always saying, you know, a plague on both your houses. He got out of the spy business because he felt it was a dirty, nasty business. And um, the other side is just as bad as we are, and we do the same immoral acts as they do. So there's all kinds of questions in the 80s as to of the morality of the spy business. What is the moral thing to do? Should we do right, uh, or should we do this, or can we sacrifice one person on if we're going to be going after a whole organization, and those kinds of moral issues start to really kick into play 
especially in 24, really came to fore, where it was almost every season of that dealt with what is legitimate, what can we do, and what should we do in order to protect the United States, and that gets to be very murky and gray. It's not always as black and white as taking on a thrush you know, or something like that. Right, right, and I think that, that as we become, you know, we've become much more not only internationally knowledgeable as a society, but also as people have become more cynical of government. Yeah. I think that, you know, that you see that. So do you see that from from decade to decade as well? I mean, it seems to me that a lot of the spy genre stuff from the 60s was, some of it was, was really funny. You know, there was a lot of humor. There was a lot of spoofing on 007, who was, of course, you know, the big name of 1960s um, film and television, um, but also some, you know, maybe a little bit more innocent, not things like Secret Agent, which was a pretty serious show. Um, but did you see that genera- uh, from decade to decade, you know, as the politics and society changed? Oh, sure. You can easily tell shifts in taste and tone. Because um, in the 60s, you have all of this. Like you say, it's very Bondy, and where uh, Sean Connery's James Bond was taking on Spectre and Blofeld. Um, so there were this you know, huge masterminding organization that would take over the world. Thrush was kind of an offshoot of that. And all of these different individual madmen of the Roger Moore era were really, really fanciful. And but you know, in the 70s, you would have all of these. Well, it used to be spies would carry around gadgets. In the 70s, they became gadgets. Six million dollar man, bionic woman, uh, David McCallum's Invisible Man. Right. Uh, oh, there's another one. Oh, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. You know, she was a spy too. You know, TV spy. Uh, you know, comic book kind of things. Um, and it'd be the Brits where you'd really get the more realistic kind of thing. Have you ever seen a show called The Sandbaggers? No, I've not. But I was actually going to ask you about the differences, distinctions between British, Canadian, and American shows. So please go ahead. Well, okay, you know, British shows is where we, in the 60s, they kind of you know led the way because they had both the Avengers going that direction and Secret Agent. That was a more kind of grounded thing. Up until The Prisoner, and you can't get a show that asks more existential and philosophical questions than The Prisoner did during its run. And it was kind of, in many ways, the end of the 60s and pointing the finger toward what was going to be in the future. But the Brits, of course, they had the, the espionage was a whole different um, part of their culture because they had the Cambridge spy ring and all of the different defectors that were there and the feelings of people, you know, looking to John Le Carre and the class system of England being enveloped into his story. So they tend to be more character-driven. If you haven't seen The Sandbaggers, folks, trust me, trust me, trust me. It was a 17-episode series that's rather complex because it looks at the politics and the behind-the-scenes decision-making of this office, and it's not action-adventure by any means. Um, it was probably would have gone on longer except for the head writer mysteriously disappeared in a plane crash after 17 episodes, and they decided they couldn't carry on because he wasn't there. But it kind of picks up from that John LeCaire thing where you want to look at who are the decision makers and how do they determine what we should do. And um, then the guy in the field is going to have a conflict. Oh, well, wait a minute. This is what it's really like out here. Um, you can sit up there at Whitehall all you want and pull these strings, but um, um, it's not quite that way when you're 
you know, in those hovels in uh, Romania, wherever the case might be. Uh, but you see, you see that more and more and more in the 80s and even in the 90s when you have, uh, I'm trying to, well, the 90s, I'm trying to think of the big ones in the 90s, and they're not leaping to my mind at the moment. Uh, most on the sci-fi channels, the ones I can remember mostly. Uh, wasn't until 2001. Well, you had kind of a three-way in 2001. You had the agency, which was real gritty, where, okay, let's look inside what the CIA is actually doing. And that one didn't last too long. You had 24, which was a souped-up, hyped-up, um, uh, very clever, very innovative show, one of the best ever made. Again, exploring all these issues of terrorism. Terrorism had changed everything. Yeah. You can't talk about uh, fighting terrorists in quite the same way as you could uh, a thrush or a chrysalis. That was the bad guys in The Invisible Man on the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, and there's all these more miniseries emphasis. Okay, we've got a specific threat. Um, like an HBO series, Sleeper Cell, leaps to mind as a really good example of one. And probably Homeland, although I've never seen that because I don't have premium channels anymore. Uh, but uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, Homeland is very very well done. If so I hear get... that they were showing them last night on the um, People's Choice Awards, and I'm thinking maybe someday I'm gonna get Showtime again, but I'm too poor. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I, I write TV, so I kind of need to have all of that. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the shows that you didn't put on, and maybe it was too short a miniseries because you had several miniseries listed. Oh, there's lots. Yeah, there's many. Was uh, a Perfect Spy, which was based on John Le Carre's novel. I don't think and, that was a miniseries. I think that was a TV movie. Seven. Maybe they did. Uh, the John Le Carre miniseries would be um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Smy and Smiley's People. It, they did uh, make a number of TV movies. Perfect Spy was one. Um, Call have to find a reference book and look. <laughs> yeah, um, it was a masterpiece theater. It was on masterpiece theater, um, and it was I think it was seven episodes, if I'm not mistaken. I re- I remember it because it was one of the few um, few uh, media presentations of of some of my favorite Lacare novels and a perfect spy is like my favorite Lacare novel ever it trumps tinker taylor it trumps everything um and i just always loved that show anyway but i was like oh it's not in the book but it was probably too short and i think it was just seven episodes so that's probably why it's not in there um but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the British series were much more grounded, as you said. They had a lot of issues with their own secret services, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of leaks, a lot of, and that that whole kind of inner circle, and and that comes out of World War II intelligence work, you know, that whole history. Um, very interesting. So I have a question. Alrighty. So, I am – I have a lot of questions. I've already asked you a lot of questions. Um, I have many more. Um, so I am a female who loves the genre. I have always loved the genre. As I said, I went through your book, and I listed off, I think, 30 or 40 episodes, thirty or forty TV shows, TV series that I used to watch or still watch. Um, is there a demographic that a lot of these shows go for? Do they try – over the years have tried to create series that 
attract men and women equally in different ways? One of the things about spy television, and I mean, in this case, it's TV shows of the 1960s, is that it was a genre that really allowed women to come to a place on television that they couldn't do in other series. If you think about the time you had Westerns, so if you wanted to try to be realistic at all, women were kind of relegated to certain roles. If you think about the situation comedies of the time, women were normally housewives. You may have the exception like Rosemary on the Dick Van Dyke show and things like that, but in the main, women were expected to be mothers. They were expected to stay at home. And in most of the private eye shows and cop shows and things like that, women were going to be the secretaries. They were going to be behind the desk. But TV spy shows really opened up areas that women could go places that they hadn't before. If you think of Mission Impossible, Barbara Bain was an equal partner with all of the members of the team. With the Avengers, you had the various um, fighting women. In fact, Honor Blackman and um, Diana Rigg were far better fighters than John Steed ever was. He was, you know, tripping people with the umbrella or <laughs> foxing them. But they were the uh, ones kicking guys around and throwing them around. And I talked with an author of a book on Honey West. She just loved that show because it was a case where women could throw and beat up men. <laughs> she talked about that quite a lot. Even in Get Smart, you could see Barbara Feldon that she might have deferred to Max a certain way, but everybody knew she was smarter and brighter. Um, but these women, because they were in this business, could go around the world and they could interact um, with men in a way that other shows wouldn't let them um, do. And the same thing for other minorities. If you think of I Spy in particular, Bill Cosby, you know, a black co star. In most, if you had a domestic circumstance where you had two cops, you know, in the city beats of, I don't know, Savannah, Georgia, or wherever it might be, you couldn't have a black co-star. I mean, heck, remember, Southern Stations banned that show outright because they just did not want to see a black and white equals. But because of the fact that all of the, and this was by design, um, uh, um, I know the creator, Sheldon Leonard, knew very well that there was going to be resistance but because all their adventures are going to be in China or going to be in Europe or going to be in South America or going to be all over the globe, then Bill Cosby and Robert Culp could interact in ways and get involved in stories that wouldn't be possible within the borders of the U.S. So by what the spy genre was doing, open doors. And, yes, they did target women. and they, Well, they mostly, in the 60s, they targeted young people. So you get April Dancer and the girl from Uncle. That wasn't so much um, great openings of female equality necessarily, but it was certainly designed, you know, to attract um, young girls and young guys, you know, to oogle over Stephanie Powers and all of that. Um, Does that make any sense? I'm sorry. One of the other things they did, and this is from my own, you know, teeny bopper, um, young (laughs) female adolescent point of view from back in those days, they tended to cast, and I don't. It wasn't always as the main character, but a sidekick character, like Ilya, was originally a sidekick character. Um, and, um, and and in other shows, they cast young, very looking, often British actors. Oh sure. Yeah. Well, of course, in the sixties, if you, as Robert Vaughn has said many times over the years. Um, actors in popular TV shows were equivalent to rock stars. 
So Ilya Koryakin was very, you know, the blonde beetle as a very decided nod to connect um, uh, the man from Uncle and shows like that with popular culture. So they had on acts like Sonny and Cher was on Uncle, and um, they played every mother's son, come on down to my boat, baby, for one episode. And there was absolutely a desire to reach the audience. Well, you know, Robert Vaughn and Ilya Koryakin, well, David McCallum, both appeared on Hullabaloo. So there was that trying to make that connection between if you like um, our shows and you're going to like rock and roll and popular music. So you're definitely trying to shoot for that particular demographic. Yeah, I hated those silly episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Even then, I like those, you know, tormented and tortured characters. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the man from Uncle, I mean, Ilya was that often. But um, they on shows like, for example, oh, uh, oh, Operation Jericho, which you have in there, in your book, which was a World War II-ish um, kind of spy thing, um, and they had on John Lighton, who was in The Great Escape with David McCallum, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, talk about espionage and stuff like that. Um, but they would cast people like that, um, and sure. I. Think it was Definitely to get us young women into these kind of boys' own sort of uh, shows as well. But um, so a lot of these shows, especially the shows in the 60s and the 70s, um, had great music, really Mm. open, really memorable stuff. And I was actually half tempted to um, find a clip of the Man from Uncle opening or. Secret Agent Man, which I can still sing from memory. <laughs> uh, hit, actually. Um, but I, w- I was concerned about getting into trouble with ASCAP, and so I didn't do that, um, realizing that this is a very public uh, forum. So so of, of all of the music, um, did, how, did, how do you think the music, how important was music to those shows? During the 60s, again, back to that rock and roll connection, and again, back to James Bond, there was, well, take the James, we'll start with the James Bond movies. They made a decided and serious attempt to really connect with the popular music. They wanted that popular title song. You can think of Nancy Sinatra and He Only Lived Twice. They specifically wanted an American singer, and they specifically wanted a singer with, known for the white go-go boots and had pop hits, uh, these boots are made for walking and all that kind of stuff. They wanted that kind of connection. I once talked to Earl Hagen, the guy that wrote the um, theme for I Spy, and asked him if he thought there was anything that was like a spy genre, and he didn't think so. Didn't, But a lot of other folks do, that they think it was kind of an extension of the private eye music, if you think of Peter Gunn in particular, and the music of Henry Mancini, that kind of crime jazz thing that started in the 50s, kind of evolved. Because on James Bond, for example, a big part of it was Vic Flick playing the electric guitar. Because uh, John Barry Seven was a rock and roll ventures band, and he just kind of added the brass and the horns and things like that to create the Bond sound. So there was a, you know, in the 60s, there was a real specific, let's be cool. And um, um, they had a lot of, I thought, really great. You can find all kinds of collectible albums and um, CD collections of just spy music. And virtually everything that was in the 60s is there. Um, the Prisoner is a very great song. 
Edwin Astley in England, who did both The Saint and The Prisoner, uh, were a lot of great themes for uh, British television. Laurie Johnson's The Avengers theme is, is very memorable. Mission Impossible, uh, uh, Peter Graves used to say that Lalo Schifrin music elevated that TV series by about 85, 85%, well, 88%, that's what he said, because, um, A, it's so memorable, and, of course, the Mission Impossible march all the way through the episode kept things going and made it identifiable. Oh, there's no question about it that the in those days when such things as theme songs existed or title music existed, um, those theme songs had a yeah, them great for great merchandising as well because they had all the singles on the albums that spun off. And get back in the days when we didn't have DVRs or Blu-rays or anything like that, all we had in between the episodes was the music, and the music will take you right there. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Um, I wanted to spend. I want to do a couple more things um, that will be longer because uh, the show is wow. We've got only 20 minutes left, which is kind of cool that we've this has gone by so fast. Um, I do want to talk about 007, but first I want to go through the shows that I ticked off in your book that I remembered and just kind of get your sense of some of them, if you don't mind. Go for it. Uh, oh, before I do that, I wanted to ask you, and maybe that's a good lead into this. The effect of the internet. I wanted to share with you. It's it's interesting. Um, back in I think it was 1987, when The Living Daylights came out, the Bond movie, The Living Daylights. It was the first Timothy Dalton movie. Mm-hmm. I loved as James Bond, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, but I was so into it. I we had just gotten a computer. Well, we'd had a computer, but we just got a computer that had a modem attached to it. And I found the Internet. There wasn't really an Internet then, but you could you could log on and you could find Usenet groups. And I would have these conversations with James Bond fans about who was the best James Bond and how was Dalton is Bond and da-da-da-da-da. And it really opened up a sense of being part of a fandom mm-hmm. back in the mid to late 80s. So how has the existence of the Internet and the development of virtual fandoms, what kind of effect has that had, A, on some of the older shows that people remember fondly and also going forward? Well, a couple of things come to mind. The first of which is just in any fandom, whatever that might be, whether it's TV spies or um, a favorite TV show or whatever, anything, the Internet allows all fans to communicate with each other. Because wherever you're at in your town, in your business, um, whatever it is you're doing, you may find other people with a common interest, but probably you know you're not going to be talking to people on a daily basis about Uncle or the Avengers or anything like that. Whereas online, you can get on listservs and fan groups and discussion boards and everything else, and talk about your favorite shows uh, to your heart's content and all the ephemera that came with them and all the different merchandising. So it gives you that world of communication with people who share common interests, and of course that's with any old subject you can care to think of. I think, too, that for a lot of fan fiction writers, it gives them an avenue they didn't have. Before um, the Internet, there would be people that put out, you know, fanzines that you'd have to order and find out about one way or another. Um, But now, you know, you can go, well, your man from UNCLE. 
I don't know how many people are writing Man from Uncle novels still. Yeah. Uh, you know, and posting them up there, and you can find them, and you can read them, and you can read new adventures. You know, from you know fans of the show. Uh, so you know, they, of course, some cases they take them into different places that you wouldn't have ever guessed. <laughs> um, they could do things with online novels that you could never do on network television then or now, for that matter. Um, for those of us who have affection particular periods, well, for example, your Scarecrow and Mrs. King, when I started doing research on that, it was, you know, it was a popular show in its day, and it had its, its, it was another one of those shows that was largely landlocked into one city, Washington, D.C., they weren't really globetrotted, and they had a very domestic side to it, that was another characteristic of the 80s shows, a lot of more family relationships were brought in, as opposed to the 60s when guys were playboys, they were out all over the place, but not so much in the, in the 80s shows. But there's a huge fan base for Scarecrow and Mrs. King. It just surprised the living daylights out of me. They have the little conventions and meetings and things like that, you know, that you know fans of that show will get together and then talk about it. So, again, finding fellow like-minded people, sometimes, you know, you think that there's, you know, it's a whole forgotten show and maybe, you know, one of your closet favorites, but there's a lot of other people that have the same feelings and, um, Sometimes rejuvenate show. I sometimes think a lot of this interest will spur um, DVD producers to put out series. Ah, well, if there's this much interest in something, maybe we need to take a look and see if we can sell it, um, whatever it might be. Sure, I remember in the Scarecrow and Mrs. King fandom, and I wasn't a big participant in it because by the time I found it, I really was into something else. <laughs> uh, I was kind of into the X-Files. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote fan fiction for the X-Files. Um, a lot of it, but, um, I know that that fandom put a lot of pressure, uh, to get DVDs released of the series. And that just happened a couple of years ago where the DVDs were finally released. Um, it's kind of fun going back and watching those episodes again and just realizing how hokey some of them were. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Especially even in the old music, sometimes it was like your favorite things and, Forty years later, you hear it again. What on earth was I thinking? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so now I want to go through some of these that I that I checked off in your book, um, and and I this is kind of sort of alphabetical. So, uh, Man from Uncle, which was my first love in the whole world, which I already said. Uh, not so much the girl from Uncle, which was. Yeah, you're not alone with that uh, assessment by any means. Cute as Noel Harrison was, you know. It's oh, sure, yeah, he's Rex Harrison's son, and that was another case where they wanted a Brit, and they wanted somebody who was a potential pop star, and he was selected because one of the uncle producers, I think it was Doug Benton, I could be wrong, um, saw him on The Tonight Show singing, he had a hit record out called The Young Girl, and thought, bingo, if you want to, you know, if Ilya you Kuryakin was going to be called The Blonde Beetle, let's see if we can't find an actual pop star and bring him on, and um, that's why he was picked. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and then, of course, the Avengers. And, and John Steed, Patrick McNee was neither young nor cute, but there was a certain sexiness about him that I think really, and of course, men all went crazy for Diana Rigg. Um, oh, to put it mildly. <laughs> I, well, there was so much about the Avengers when Brian Clements and Albert Fennell took over, because that, that was a show with an ec- epic history. 
started out basically as kind of a police drama with Steed as kind of the shadowy second figure. And then the first, um, uh, Dr. Keel um, departed. Then they brought in Kathy Gale up the ante, and then they brought in Diana Rick. And that's when they went the sci-fi route, and that's when they really hit their apex because it was so stylish. Uh, there's a world unto itself. It's very stylized, very surreal yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, failed as a movie when they tried. Oh, did it ever. But then again, how many of these spy remakes uh, as a movies have worked? Uh, yeah. I adore Ray Fiennes, but John Steed, he is not. So, um, let's see. That was a mess. I enjoyed Blue Light for the short time it was on, and Coronet Blue. I think there was a thing with blue things back in that particular time. <laughs> it's I don't interesting. Remember. For a long time, nobody knew that Coronet Blue was a spy show. Because uh, if you watch the episodes, there's really no clue about that, other than he's being chased by these gray men. Is years later when the creator talked about the backstory of it and how this guy was a spy who was an amnesiac being produced, uh, chased by these assassins. But you never saw that on screen because they didn't get the care of the show on to explain it. Yeah, I sort of figured he was, or at least, I mean, I was so young at the time, it didn't, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is sort of like one of those shows. Um, I also enjoyed the Delphi Bureau, which was a more hearted thing. Um, And, of course, Get Smart, which was so brilliant and so funny and um, just had great writers. Uh, And uh, mildly. Yeah, to put it mildly. just so, in a way, so subversive in its own right. It was a very cool show. Um, I Spy was another one I just loved, and that was more serious uh, spy fare. Um, which, yeah, very character-oriented. Yeah, very character-oriented. Uh, loved the, the relationship between the two main characters, Robert Culp and Bill Cosby, were just brilliant um, in that show. And even watching it uh, now, you know, in retrospect, seeing it from time to time, um, it really holds up. It does. It does. It has a very good shelf life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So does some of the Man from Uncle episodes have? A, I mean, some of the early, early ones do. Not some of the sillier ones, but some of the earlier serious ones do. Um, I mentioned Jericho, uh, Operation Jericho, but then Jer- now you listed Jericho, the the five. Uh, 2006, Jericho, the post-nuclear one. Really well, there is two different ones. The one you're talking about was back in the 60s. That was also created by Norman Felton, the same guy who created The Man from UNCLE. I, uh, I haven't seen DVDs of an ages, so I don't remember it all that well. All I had was the research I found on it. And that, and then, of course, the, the show Jericho that was on in the mid-2000s. Uh, mid, uh, that was mm. the post uh, show um, and um, that I also enjoyed and, and I was kind of surprised to see it in your book but it does have an espionage dimension to it, certainly a conspiracy dimension to it Oh, big time, well, plus they, one of the main characters, I can't remember, Hawkins, that's what his name was, was uh, a former spy, or at least he's, well, I guess he still was a spy, he had that palm hidden away a lot of the story and sort of got rushed together at the end there but we've had so many cases where we've had a lead character who was a spy that the whole series itself might not be 
out and out espionage, but I can't a lot of conspiracy shows that um well the X Files many people wouldn't think of as a spy show, but I do because uh what Scully and Mulder were doing was exactly what um uh, Steed and Mrs. Peel were doing the Avengers and in fact Chris Carter admitted that he wanted to have that kind of sexual tension between them that Steed and Mrs. Peel do but as Mrs. Peel and Steed were out looking for extraordinary crimes against the people in the state take it the next step further and the crimes are being committed against the US and their FBI agents and they're dealing with aliens who want to take over the world so right. it's kind of a logical extension right right well, right at the fringe of course, there was Mission Impossible, oh, which was great. What what a terrific show! Um, Martin Landau, Barbara Bain, Greg Morris. I mean, that whole original cast, um, even before Peter Graves. Uh, great, it was and, great. And it established the template for so many shows to follow of ensemble cast to the present day, where so many good shows um, and some of them have come and gone and are quickly forgotten. You had, you know, five or six characters and their different lives and interrelationships and things like that. That took it. You don't have the same two agents every week doing the same thing. Well, I think NCIS or NCIS Las Vegas, not Las Vegas, um, Los Angeles. Uh, that's a spy show because they're always after terrorists and things like that. And that's a whole team. And that's kind of a our version of Mission Impossible, very similar. And then you have the loner kind of series like Man in a Suitcase and, and Secret Agent. Speaking of theme songs, yeah. Yeah, right, right, um, which were great. I love those kind of loner spy guys, um, much more, I think, than uh, Jack Bauer um, in their day. Uh, and then you listed Rocky and Bullwinkle, which I had never thought <laughs> of as a – and that was – I mean, that was – the best TV show on ever, ever. Yeah, I do have a lot. Of, yeah, we have Lancelot, Link, Secret Ship, which will play and all that. But it's, you know, Boris and Natasha, you know. They're, they're Potsylvania agents, you know, who are always out after Moose and Squirrel with all those nutty um, um, gizmos and gadgets. To... <laughs> I was, and I was like, of course it was an espionage show. Uh, I mentioned Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and you put in their voyage to the bottom of the sea, which was didn't start out that way. Although I think Richard Basehart's character was always sort of a, you know, agent provocateur in a way, um, sending them on missions. But definitely, as they as the show went on, um, it definitely took on more of that air of uh, an espionage show. Yeah, because they were dueling with foreign countries, especially Asian countries, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I actually discovered that the same year I discovered um, The Man from UNCLE. I I was a very precocious (laughs) eight-year-old. I would watch that, and then I would watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, and that was – and my mother loved The Wild Wild West. She adored it with with Artemis Gordon. That's who she was in love with, not Robert Conrad, Uh, but (laughs) – who played uh, Artemis. Ross Martin, yeah. Yeah, right, Ross Martin. Right, right, right. Who had been a huge star in the Yiddish theater before he starred in that show. So that's why my mother loved him. Um, Perfect Jewish. Plus, he was so versatile. One of his greatest gifts was, uh, he's a lot of the actors we don't really see that much of anymore. 
who can play all kinds of different characters and take on different disguises and guises and uh, different dialects. You know, what every week he'd be posing as kind of an Indian prince or uh, Native American. I'm not saying Indian. I meant they're um, from the uh, continent, India. Uh, but he also had Native. He'd be Native American, or he'd be you know, a member of a gang. He could play all of these different roles, whereas Connor was a straight guy. He was always dapper and, um, you know, slicking out, you know, messing with the ladies. But that was an excellent show. It was kind of well, contrived, but it was excellent. It really We have actually got a caller, so I'm going to see who this is. Hang on one second, because I don't know. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk TV. Who are we talking to? Hello? Oh, I think they're just I think they're just listening online. I don't think they want to talk. I think they just want to listen. I'm still getting used to the little symbols next to the phone numbers. Um Oh, so we have one listener. So we well yeah, we have up we have people in the uh chat room as well. A couple people. One couple people in the chat room uh that have come come and gone. Um so in the last few minutes I have a few other shows on here, but I want to skip ahead to talk about Bond. How can I not have you on the show without talking a little bit about Bond? So who's your favorite Bond? Well, my favorite Bond is, an old, well, I've got kind of two favorites because one of them's a, a friend of mine. So I've got, you know, John Connery has got to be number one. And for me, George Lazenby is number two. This last week I got a funny experience. I got a seven-and-a-half-year-old uh, grandson. And for him, James Bond is Daniel Craig, and all these other guys are imposters. He wants to see Casino Royale or Skyfall again and again. But no interest in it, even hearing about all the other ones, because they're not James Bond. <laughs> I guess that's kind of, it's a generational thing, you know. There are those, if Pierce Brosnan was your first Bond, then there's a special place in your heart for Pierce Brosnan. And if Timothy Dalton was your first Bond, then there's a special place for him. But for those of us who were there all the way back, Connery, hey, you know. (laughs) Well, Connery was my first Bond. The first Bond I saw was Goldfinger. And then Dr. No and From Russia With Love were released after Goldfinger or re-released. No, 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 I know they were before, but they were re-released. As a double feature, that's true, yeah. Yes, after Goldfinger was such a huge hit because I know I saw Goldfinger first. And then I saw Dr. No and From Russia with Love, which were earlier. I knew, I you know. Um, but and I loved, uh, I loved Connery. I think I saw Thunderball. I, my girlfriend, my friend, who my my uh, partner in crime with Man from Uncle, um, would take us downtown for the opening of the new Bond movie, and we would sit in the movie theater when you could do this, and we would sit and watch. I think we watched Thunderball. Four times in a row. <laughs> I think I've done it in a row, but I mean, now here's one for folks out there. If you if you look back at your Sean Connery movies, I kind of divide them into two periods. One of which is the Terrence Young, which is Doctor No from Rush with Love and Thunderball, which are in some ways the more grounded. He's taking on Spectre and he's dealing with. Um, the agents of Spectre, and you could see it's one man versus this huge organization. And then you got the guy Hamilton, Sean Connery, and the guy who directed You Only Live Twice, whose name eludes me at the moment, um, where he's, um, uh, You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever, and you know, 
all the twice where things are really, really fanciful. There's no plot whatsoever, and they don't. <laughs> they're jumping all over the place, um, and it really sets the stage for what Roger Moore was going to be. So I really kind of think it's two different Connery eras. And then, then when see Dalton over, it was such a difference from Roger Moore that oh, okay. I don't. I don't think anyone gave the poor guy a chance. I thought he was phenomenal as Bond. I never uh, had a problem with him as Bond. I think the adversaries and the circumstances that he was tossed into were not on the same scale as you would expect in a Bond movie. Right. That was by design, and because that was the well, we're into the eighties. Well, I, I talk about this in the first book um, that. You know, TV spies themselves, you know, were brought down. MacGyver and um, the Equalizer and Scarecrow, Mrs. King. Things are brought down to more gritty, realistic um, um, kind of circumstance. And that would follow the lead of Bond because the Timothy Dalton Bond was grittier and um, dealing with, you know, drug lords and things like that. He would have had more time if it hadn't been for lawsuits. It was, nobody had really big problems with him as Bond. He was just taken off the screen because of. The then one with Kevin McClory. Right. Well, I I remember having really long conversations with people saying, you know, he he really and I had read the Ian Fleming books when I was like nine or ten years old. I stole them all from my older brother, and that and Catch Twenty Two. I I his his library. He was like eight years older than me, so um, I would steal all his Ian Fleming novels, and I really thought that Dalton was much more in the style of the novel James Bond. Kind well, of was a, war weary um killer. <laughs> oh, that too was by design. Timothy Dalton said right when early on before the first movie came out that he wanted to go back to the Ian Fleming books. He I sat down and read the Ian Fleming books. He wanted to have that Ian Fleming James Bond up there on the screen and I think it showed. Yeah, it did, and and I don't think people were ready for that after Roger Moore, because I remember really he he'd gotten ripped apart by a lot of people, and not in the hardcore James Bond fandom, but more in the popular, the pop culture, um, and now with Daniel Craig coming much much more back to that grittiness, I think people are sort of ready for it. Even though uh, Pierce Brosnan was much more in the style of Roger Moore, much I, more. I did well. I I only saw one of the Roger Moore Bonds. I have to confess, I was not a and uh, only a couple of the Pierce Brosnan ones. And one of those I saw was because Robert Carlyle was the villain, and I really like Robert Carlyle. So, um, and that was in the world was not the world is not enough. Um, but anyway, so so in the very short time we have left, best Bond vil- speaking of Bond villains, best Bond villain ever. Hi ho ho! Well, I got to go with Blofeld, even though he was played by different characters. I still think that whole because you remember uh, Sean Connery. Every movie he was all Bond versus the same organization, you know, Doctor No and um, Rosa Klebb, and even well, no, I get now the Goldfinger was Inspector. He was in the books, but I don't know he wasn't in the books either. But just by all the other ones, it's Bond versus this huge organization led by that guy hiding behind the. screen stroking his white cat so he's got to be number one i think hugo drax and moonraker is better than people give him credit for 
in the Pierce Brosnan age, I think uh, Jonathan Price and Tomorrow Never Dies was just outstanding. He really was able to ham it up and, and, and take it to um, the heights of old. Really, he was a real return to the classic Bond villain, Goldfinger. You know, and um, of course the very first one, um, Doctor No. You know, they was Joseph Weisman, perfectly cast. Yes. Yes. Well, Wes, this has been so much fun. We sailed by in an hour, didn't we? Yeah. We did. We did. I see. I just, there's a reason for these being an hour long. Uh, there's a lot of room. And I really want to thank you, uh, Wes Britton, author of the Encyclopedia of TV Spies and three other books on this genre, this fascinating genre, all available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thanks very much for having me. Always a fun subject to talk about. Definitely, definitely. And this is Barbara Barnett signing off for Let's Talk TV Live, sponsored by Wireless One Marketing, Wireless One Apps, and by Chasing Zebras, the unofficial guide to house. Hopefully, we'll see you tomorrow night for the launch of the Great House MD Rewatch right here on Let's Talk TV Live. See you next time. Bye, Wes. Goodbye, Barbara. Goodbye, folks.